Hi, and welcome to the Trailside Channel. We are so glad you're joining us. God has a place and a purpose for you, and we hope this message helps you find that and know how much He loves you. Thanks for stopping by and enjoy the message. Listen, I want you guys to know, I don't say this enough, I absolutely love you guys. I mean, I love this church, I love the mission, I love what's happening here, and I hope you know that, like, that's genuinely how I feel and how our leadership feels about you. We, we pray for you, we care for you, um, we uh, bother you and annoy you, hopefully, um, to check on you, uh, but it's because we genuinely um, just love you guys, and we love what the Lord is doing through you and doing in this place and in this church. Um, a couple of quick things I want you to know. Uh, we're going to take our offering at the end of service, just on the way out. Uh, we'll have baskets uh, with some human beings there, and uh, you can give your offering there. If you don't give online, which is probably the easiest way, or you can text give to that number on the screen. But also, in the lobby today, you're going to find um, something different, I think is an okay way of saying this. If you don't know, we had two babies on staff born uh, this past week. Yeah, pretty exciting. Um, and I told Dusty I wasn't going to use this slide, but I guess I will. And he's smiling. Are you going to put up there? There you go. <coughs> it's Clara Jean. That's Pastor Tyler's baby on the left. And uh, obviously, you can tell whose baby's on the right because his beard is half in the picture. So, um, but Leona Mae Jones. And I got we got to hang out with Leona already. And man, she is just a sweet, sweet little girl, um, and very awake and alive too. Just big old eyes. She's beautiful. So. Um, but with that, when you go in the lobby today, you're going to see someone who you might think is, is Josh, one of our elders. Uh, you heard his story last week. You've probably seen him dressed up as Josh's Kitchen, and so we're sticking with that theme, and he's going to be dressed as a chef out there today. Um, I don't know what it looks like, so just best of luck to you. Um, but we have a meal train that we started for both of those guys and their families, and if you uh, want to love them well, um, if you want to care for these guys and their families, uh, we'd love for you to sign up for a meal um, to bring to these families just to kind of help make it a little easier uh, for them as we go. Anyway, um, last but not least, third Saturday is this Saturday as well, so if you're in town and want to do some good in the city, you want to help us pursue our vision, our, our mission of serving others and loving Jesus well, and then to do that in community, we would love for you to come uh, Saturday morning, 9 o'clock, we'll be here, we have breakfast, and then um, we hang out and do all kinds of fun stuff, so really excited about that. Um, hey, so I want to tell you this story that I read, if that's okay, are we good with that? Great, all right, I just want to make sure we're alive here, that's great. Um, while you turn to Daniel, chapter 3, we're going to be in the book of Daniel today. If you're wondering where that is, it's after Psalms and Proverbs, um, and it's before the New Testament. It's kind of toward the front of what's called the, the prophets, the minor prophets, major prophets. We're going to be in Daniel 3 today. But uh, I heard this story about a young World War I soldier who was in his very first live battle. He's on the field, bullets are flying by, and he runs backwards, jumps into the foxhole, and as he cuts himself up against the ground, he feels something on his hand that's not normal. It's kind of a weird thing to feel out on the battlefield. And so he grabs it and dusts it off, and he finds a cross. And as he's looking at it, wondering what's happening, the next thing he sees is another human being come flying in the same way, bounding himself up against the wall of the foxhole. And he looks, and it's a chaplain. Soldier, relieved, looks at the chaplain. He says, boy, am I, am I glad you're here chaplain, sensing a moment of ministry, of the whole purpose, he's out there, looks at the young soldier and he says, 
okay, that's great. Um, how can I help? And he goes, well, I, I just found this thing, and, and I don't know how to turn it on. Somebody got that. It's okay. But, but that's so funny because that, that kind of is how we view faith anyways, right? Like, like it's a thing we just kind of hope to find and then hope it activates at the right time so that we can kind of get through what it is we're trying to get through. That's exactly how, how faith works in the kind of American-centric view that we have of God and who he is and how he operates. It's like, I'm going to hold this in my hand, or I'm going to get this box, and I'm going to put it away for a little while, and then when I need it, when life is tough, I'm going to pull it out and be like, oh, God, please help me. And, and I, I think that the reason that sat with me is because the question that we're going to ask today is, what do you do when the only thing you have left is faith? What, what do you do when the only thing you have left is that you've been, been brought down to the studs of your life and the only thing you have left is to finally go and ask God to help? Because we continue this series called No Perfect People. The idea is for you to be connected in with um, understanding that there's community here and that's common unity, that it comes from being together and having the same viewpoint and understanding and that what you're walking through is not something that you're the first person ever to walk through, but instead that it's okay to be here and to need faith, to need help. But it's a big battle, I think, when we say faith in Christ. It's, it's very easy to, to feel like you follow Jesus well when there's not a huge need for faith, right? Like when everything is really good, there's not a lot that will make you get to a point you're like, gosh, I really wish that... Um, that, like, I, I just love Jesus more. Like, finances are great, family's great, everything's going on. Like, man, God, you're so good. But what happens when that isn't the case? Like, when things are tough? See, there's this bad theology out there, right? And maybe you've heard it. Maybe you've heard of, like, faith healers, health and wealth, prosperity. Anybody heard that stuff before? Where you, like, turn it on TV, on TVN, and you hear just this old white guy with a suit and a really voice like this telling you to sow a seed of ministry. There we are. You guys ever been, you seen that before? Yeah. Yeah, if you don't have kids yet, or if you're like us and expecting one, know that when you wake up at 3 a.m., there's some really incredible bad theology that's on television. <laughs> really good. You'll sow a seed of $9. God will make it nine. No, he won't. Um, no, but there's actually a quote from a famous faith healer. This is what he says about this idea of faith that there will be no sickness for the one who is a saint of God. If you believe enough and know that your body belongs to God, it does not and cannot belong to sickness and poverty. I, by that theology, am doing a bad job. <laughs> really bad. But see, what we've done is we've, we've gotten this place where we think faith in church by proxy of that means getting what we think we need instead of understanding what it is that God has for us. That's a big shift, right? I know I've used this example a lot, but I think it's because it works. If, if I gave my son everything he wanted, right, he would have a diet purely of lollipops, canned sodas, and uh, probably breadsticks, right? He would put a new definition on childhood obesity. He would. He doesn't have that little thing that tells him when to turn off. I don't know if that's a thing that little kids have to grow out of or they just eat until eventually they get sick. Uh, my son, I thought, would learn that. He hasn't yet. Um, 
which is funny because after lunch yesterday, it was like, I think 30 minutes, she was like, hey, um, can I have a snack? Just have it. <laughs> anyway, that's another story. Kids, no, you cannot. You do not need, need cheese sticks right now. Um, no, but that's what happens. We get this idea of bad theology that says God should give us what we want and instead of what he actually knows that we need. And so what we do is we make God a magician and put him in a box that serves us. And then we wonder when things go wrong, when things are hard and things don't match up like we think they should. We wonder why that occurs. It's because we've attempted to make ourselves the authority. So the real question is this, um, because I don't remember Jesus saying that if you believe hard enough, uh, that life will get easy, life gets easier. Or like if you trust enough, that struggle disappears. I don't, I haven't read that in here anywhere. Maybe you have, you can point me to the right place. But the real question for, for the human who follows Jesus, who believes and trusts in Jesus is, do you trust God because God is good or because at the point in, in your life where you are right now, life is just kind of good? Is your trust based on the current temperature of where, where you are in life? Like if things are good, is it easy for you just to be like, yeah, yeah, God is good. And then when it goes really bad, really fast, all of a sudden you're going, God, where are you? Because here's what I see when I read Scripture and what we're going to read in Daniel 3 this morning. This is what I see. I see people being torn down to the studs, being absolutely made nothing in order for the Lord to build them back up. Uh, That's what I consistently see. Because the difference of following Jesus and following fear is that one actually walks with you and the other just destroys you. But you know what we do? We do a really good job of following fear. So the question for today is, what makes you follow Jesus? And, and, and what, what do you do when following Jesus becomes suddenly and quickly, inexplicably hard? What do you do? When, when your life is smooth sailing and all of a sudden something comes and interrupts it, what do you do? There's three responses. The first is, is you run, right? People will run. Run from God, run from the church, run from whatever would, would not control them. Let that fear drive them. And the second is to hide, right? You just kind of lurk back in the shadows and keep walls up, stay safe. Because if people know you're struggling, then they can know actually you? And that's scary? Or the third response is this, is to abide. That's why in John 15, Jesus says, abide in me and I in you. It's a trust. It's a lifestyle. It is that every breathing moment you have is because you are walking with and being known by Jesus the only one where you don't run away. And that's what we're going to see in Daniel 3 this morning. Um, uh, Daniel is a a, a prophet. It's um, it's a book that was written in the 6th century B.C., so 630 years or so before Jesus came. Um, And basically what's happened that you need to know is that all of God's people have found themselves in captivity, in slavery, again. I feel like this is a common theme, right? Like, if you read through the Old Testament, you see, like, things are really good, and 
God's people are like, yeah, it's awesome. And then they're in slavery, and they're like, and then God releases them out of that, and they're like, yeah, it's awesome. And they're in slavery again. And then, like, they go through the Red Sea, and everything's great, and then they're in slavery again. And you just want to shake the old church, right? Like, the old, you just want to shake them. Be like, will you please wake up? Stop building things out of gold. All you need to do, just stop. And so they're found again in captivity in Babylon, some of the worst captivity that God's people would experience. And here's the situation in Daniel 3. In case you didn't read the first two chapters this morning, um, this guy named Belshazzar and three of his buddies, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Azariah, excuse me, are hanging out in Babylon. Um, and the, the king has this dream, right? And it messes them up. You guys have ever had a dream and you woke up and you're not sure if it was real or not? You're like, I think that my whole family is dead and the earth is on fire. But I'm not sure. So real that it shakes you. So the king has this dream, right? And it's so real that it just it messes him up. Like he cannot rest. He doesn't know what to do. And it's this big statue where like the head is gold and then it's silver and then it's iron and then it's clay. And it's like, well, yeah, clay pretty much. And it freaks him out because he sees the statue get destroyed piece by piece by piece by piece. And so he calls all like the magicians and all the people, the wise men of the time. And he's like, hey, listen, um, I need you to uh, help me understand this dream, right? And he puts this really fun caveat on it. And he says, hey, um, if you do that and you're wrong, I'm going to kill you, murder you, and destroy your whole family, burn your city down. So don't mess this up. Right? Listen, my mom threatened me, but never to that point. As a child, right? So the king looks at all of his trusted advisors and says, hey, here, I have this dream. If you can tell me what it is and what it means, that's great. I'm going to honor you. I'm going to make you famous. I'm going to give you everything you ever wanted. But if you screw it up, I'm going to tear you limb from limb and burn your family. Maybe this is a little bit sadistic of me, but sometimes I, I think we should fear prophecy like that right now, Right? Like the guys who come in and they like give this false prophetic stuff and they want to make much of themselves and like, God has good for you. I'm like, oh. I don't think you'd be saying that if you took them seriously. Because every time you see prophecy, especially in the Old Testament, you know what they do? They give bad news. Bad news. There's one place that prophecy happens in the Old Testament that it's good. You know what it is? It's in Isaiah and it's about Jesus. Everything else is like, the prophet came. And he said, if you don't turn, you will burn. All of your cities are going to die. God is going to kill all of you. Things are going to go down. Your city walls will be left with not a stone on top of a stone. Or it's like, hey, nothing you can do. God's judgment is coming. Get ready. It's going to be a blast. Israel's going to come and murder everyone you know and love. Like, that's what biblical prophecy looks like. It does not look like someone being like, hey, this is a tough season in life. If you sell $100 into this ministry, God's going to bless you and take care of you and make all of your dreams come true, and you will drive a Lamborghini. But, but that's what we've allowed prophecy to become. And so the king gives this edict, right? And he says, if you can solve it, then, then do so. And he gets so mad because nobody will do it because they're all scared that he says, okay, take all the wise men, all the magicians, all the people, kill them. Just get rid of them. Just take them out, 
chop them down, kill their families anyways. And some of his advisors come to them like, hey, there are these three guys, these four guys rather, um, who are part of, of Israel, of God's people, who just know stuff. Like, they, they just get it. And this one guy, Daniel, said, Belshazzar, said he can do this. So the king says, okay, come on. Daniel interprets his dream, and he doesn't give him good news. Like, the dream does not go well. He says, oh, here's the statue you saw. By the way, this part gets destroyed, and then this part, and then this part, and then this part, and then this part. And he says, all of your kingdom, all of your legacy is going to be removed because you are not God, because the true God of the world, God of the universe, is going to have his kingdom stand, not yours. That's what he tells the king. And the king goes, that was it. That was the dream. And he makes him famous. Puts him in authority. And so, as we break into chapter 3, he does what he wants anyways, this Nebuchadnezzar guy. And he decides to build a huge statue made of gold. And this is what he says in verse 5. Sorry, pardon me. Actually, I'm going to read starting in verse 1 real quick for us. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits, and the width six cubits. Now, um, does anyone have that chart on how that? No? I'll just tell you. It is 90 feet. Good job. Who nailed that? Was that Dwayne? Great. There's always a missionary in the crowd. 90 feet high and nine feet across. Kind of a big statue. Right, because that's what God. That's what we see when people try to fight God. Like they build a big tower in Babel, they build a huge statue, they build big monuments and altars. So He builds a ninety-foot statue of gold. I've been trying to get my wife to build like a seven-foot statue of me. Just, I mean, this should be immortalized. No, I'm just kidding. That's a bad joke. Um, so ninety feet by nine. And he sent word to all of the government and said, hey, listen, when, when the music starts, everyone bows down and worships this, this beautiful 90-foot statue. This is what he says in verse 4. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, to you the command is given, O peoples, nations, and men of every language, that at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, which is interesting, they liked bagpipes back then, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar, the king, has set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. Therefore, at that time, when all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshiped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar, the king, had set up. Now, this is what fear does, Right? This is what happens is we get these moments of fear and, and being scared and anxiety, and it says, hey, if you don't interact this way, then you are going to be hurt. You're going to be destroyed. Uh, this is what happens with fear. It's what happens with anxiety. It happens when we are trying to control something that is uncontrollable, and it says to you in your mind and in your heart, in the depths of who you are, it says, listen, if you don't fix this, it's going to kill you. It's going to destroy you. I know. When I was 25, I preached my very first like sermon in like big church, you know, and I had an anxiety attack. I was at this little Baptist church, 
there were 55 people there, and I was so scared that my friend, my, my wife's best friend, who was a nurse, came over and like, took my blood pressure and heart rate and had to, honest to God, is it not true, Lane? Had to calm me down and tell me, like, hey, you're not dying, you're just terrified of preaching. Honestly. But that's what fear does. It says, do this or, or torture, will, torture will occur. And so we move into this place of self-preservation instead of purpose. And here's the truth, church, is like self-preservation and purpose cannot coexist in the same place. They can't. You cannot do what you were called to do if your very first thought is to protect yourself and to self-preserve. You can't. Because you will build walls that you cannot pass through. So in verse 8, he says, do this or die. Well, down to verse 12, we see all these magicians and folks who were too scared to tell the king what his dream was go to the king. And they say in verse 12, there are certain Jews who you have appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon. Isn't that nice? It's like, hey, I've heard rumors there are certain people, and then he describes like characteristics of very important, right? It's like, hi, there is this person who lives in your home who is eight years old, who is a boy, who tends to break things. Like that, not leaving a lot of mystery here, right? Gossip in the Old Testament. Namely, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have disregarded you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. And then Nebuchadnezzar, the king, in rage and anger, gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And then these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image I have set up? Now, if you're ready, at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made. Very well. But if you do not worship, you will be immediately cast in the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And I love this. And what God is there that can deliver you from my hand? See, this is what fear does, right? It's what, it's what the king is using. He's saying, if you don't do what I want, the way I want it, when I want it, I'm going to do something to you that no one can deliver you from. I'm going to take from you something that no one can redeem. <coughs> Excuse me. And it's the same thing that we hear when bad circumstance hits our lives, when struggle, when control leaves our hands, or maybe the, what we think control is. Who will deliver you out of my hands? We tell ourselves things like, man, I know God is good, but this situation, man, this is bigger than me. I can't do this alone. Uh, listen, uh, my relationship with my wife is in shambles. There's nothing that can fix this. Or, or sickness and disease have ravaged my body, and there's no hope for repair. Or, or we let fear tell us, like, bills are more than my income, and I've got things happening, and there's no way out. Or my anxiety and my sickness own me, and, and I don't know that I'll ever have a hope of normalcy and hope 
dies, and we say, because God isn't big enough for those things. So we say God is good, but. But church, if your statement starts out with God is good, and then the next word is but, then you actually don't believe that God is good. And that's fear. That's what it does. Fear drives out what we know and demands allegiance to what it threatens. Every time. Every time, I'm going to say that again. Fear drives out what we know, like hope and truth and purpose, eternity, that we're in God's hand, that he hasn't let go, that he, he hasn't forgotten us, all the things that God says to us, that he promises, we forget those things because fear demands allegiance to what it threatens, which is to hurt us, to harm us. But then we get to verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king. <laughs> it's the most, this is like the coolest thing ever. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to give you an answer concerning this matter. Listen, if you come up and say that to me, I'm going to lose my mind with you. Right? Like that's, maybe that's just the, how I am as a person, and this isn't the best thing for me to say. I'm not painting myself well, but like, if I go up and I'm like, hey, please help me understand this, and you look at me and you're like, hey, guess what? I don't owe you an answer. I don't owe you anything. Like, that's going to upset me a little bit, right? Maybe some other people like type A's in here. I think I'm like a A and a half B, right? They say, like, we don't owe you an answer for this. It doesn't matter. And this is so crazy. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. And this is the most incredible part. Verse 18. But even if he does not, but even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. This is the statement I want to be known by. I want to look fear in the face. I want to look hardship in the face. I want to look doubt in the face and slander in the face. And I want to be able to say, listen, God can deliver me, but if he does not deliver me in the way I think he should, he's still God. And, and that understanding of who God is will not make me bow down to fear. It will not allow me to bow down to the things that own me. It, it won't do it. The worst thing you think you can have put on me, God will not allow that to separate me from him. And if it means being separated in this life, I know that that won't mean eternity that I'm separate from him. Even if he does not deliver me in this moment, I will not worship the things of this world. Listen. I put in my notes because I was feeling a little silly when I wrote it. I said, oh, oh, Nebs, you silly king, you. Right? You can, I can almost hear him saying that. Like, we don't owe you anything, oh, king. So I'm kind of sassy sometimes. We don't owe you anything. Because here's the truth, church. Here, if you hear nothing else, hear this. Trust doesn't owe fear an answer. I'm going to say that again so you hear it clearly, okay? Trust doesn't owe fear an answer. It doesn't. 
your fear and anxiety, the things that you have put in yourself, they, they, they don't, they're not owned and answered by God. God doesn't need to say, oh yeah, here, let me fix that for you. Because they don't have control over God. And you might have been taught that if you have good enough faith, that you'll have good enough deliverance. You might have heard that really bad theology before. That you just need to trust God a little more. You just need to believe God a little more. You notice how we never say like that we're believing God for something bad? You ever notice that? Like the only, the only time we say I'm believing God for, it's usually like a financial blessing or good health or something. Like we never say like I'm believing God for his will to happen and me to trust it. Wouldn't that shift some things in us? I know it wouldn't me. If my hope and my prayer was consistently that I would just trust God in his providence and his will and that he would allow me to walk in that and not fear in that, that'd be the best prayer I ever prayed. Solid faith doesn't mean that fear won't exist. It means that it won't own you within it. So we keep reading. Nebuchadnezzar in verse 19 was filled with wrath and his facial expression was altered toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Interesting line. He answered them by giving orders to heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. He commanded certain valiant warriors who were in his army to tie them up and cast them into the furnace of blazing fire. They were tied up in their trousers, their coats, their caps, and their other clothes, and were cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. So Nebuchadnezzar doesn't just like get mad and throw them in. He puts blankets and sheets and jackets and all the things that would catch fire and incinerate them and just boil them from the outside in and then throws them in the fire. That's seven times what it is. Like Nebuchadnezzar wants this to be fully done. And they fell into the fire, verse 23, into the midst of the furnace, still tied up. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astounded and stood up in haste, and he said to his high officials, Was it not three men we cast bound into the midst of the fire? And they replied to the king, Certainly. And he said, Look, I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Yeah, that's exactly what you see, Nebuchadnezzar. That is exactly what happened. Because what you tried to do was to throw someone who would worship your idol instead of God in the fire. And you know what God did? God met them in the fire instead. Because no matter where they would be thrown into, God did not leave and run away. He met them in the midst of it and walked with them. And church, that's what we have to know. That's what God does. God does not sit, and when you go through crap and junk, he does not sit on his throne and is like, you know what? I gave him the word. They have the Bible. They can pray. He's not absent to you. He doesn't just hope things work out. He meets you in the midst of the flames and stands with you. This is the freedom that we talk about. Listen, we don't come here on Sunday because we think it's a good thing and because church should happen. We come because this is the freedom that we know and that we can show to other people and how we serve and love and give and care for. This is what matters. 
What matters is that God is found in the fire with them. Not that they've protected themselves enough to not be thrown in it. The second thing I want you to hear today is that God's protection may be to bring you through the fire rather than just keep you out of it altogether. See, God's promise to his people, his promise to you is not to keep you from distress, church. His promise to you is that he will be present with you in it so that you will not be overcome, so that you will not be consumed. That is God. You want to get real weird? I'm not going to give you an option. We're going to. The idea that a deity, that God of the universe would care enough about you as a person to walk with you through the fire doesn't make sense because we see people across the street and across the block from us that we wouldn't even walk into a little bit of fire with or for. And so the idea that a God of the universe who created all things cares enough to walk with you in the midst of that and to meet you in the middle of the fire and then walk you through and then walk you out of it is so foreign to us that we cannot comprehend it could actually ever be real. What I'm telling you is he is and he does and he will, but you have to stop letting fear own you first. You have to. We have to. This comes from a guy who was scared to preach and had an anxiety attack. God's promise to his people is not to keep you from distress, it's to be present with you in the fiery furnace. When it's meant to destroy, the thing that is meant to kill you and harm you is a place that God will meet you in the midst of in the biggest way. Psalm 66.10 says, For you, O God, have tested us and you have refined us like silver. You know what it takes to be refined by silver, to, to refine silver rather? It takes finding a big block that silver is in the middle of or a part of or kind of here and kind of there. And you literally hold it over a flame and melt it down to where the parts that are not silver still exist in blocks. And you remove those and you cool it and you do it and you do it again and you do it again and you do it again. And based on how many times you do it is the depth and the the pristine nature of the silver. You know what's crazy about that? Is that is what God says about what he does with us. See, we'd rather run away from hardship and fear and fire instead of knowing that like God is actually using that to make us better and more like him. Y'all, when you go through trial and hardship and fire, it's because God is not done with you yet. But the problem is that the fear of what could be will sometimes seem more powerful than what God wills. But those moments of fear and trembling like this, they provide us with an opportunity to see who God really is. Not who we think he should be or the painting we've painted of him. I've got news for you, like Jesus is not a really sickly white dude doing this. It's not what Jesus looks like. But God's protection and his interaction with you, his people, it's not predicated on his goodness level or if he loved you enough. Because the truth of the, of the matter is this, bad things will happen to you. It doesn't mean God isn't good. It means that we need him more than ever. It means that humanity is broken and people are selfish, and because of that, we need a Savior. 
And so the question today, when adversity and pain strike, where do you turn? What do you turn to? So I want to share with you a quick video about my, my best friends, Nathan and Catherine Wilkie, about what happened when life hit them and they never expected it. I, dumb, that was dumb. <laughs> <laughs> okay. My name is Nathan Wilkie. This is my wife, Catherine Wilkie. Um, we got affiliated with Trailside because I started working with Sean when he worked at First Presbyterian. Um, I interned him with, with him for two years, and then when he left First Pres, uh, he asked me to follow him and start a church for Trailside. I actually remember this moment. I was sitting at one of my rotations and it was on a little break and I got an email saying that the results of my MRI scan had come back. And so I went online and I looked at it and the rest of it is kind of a blur as far as what it said, but the main thing I remember is possible multiple sclerosis. And from that point on, I felt like my heart literally fell to the floor because it was everything that I was so scared and so paranoid about possibly being a reality for me. Um, multiple sclerosis or MS is basically um, a neurodegenerative disease which can cause weakness um, and a lot of other symptoms such as fatigue, um, vision loss. There are multiple symptoms that are associated with it, but it's something, um, depending on what type you have, it can be progressive or it can be something that um, you just have symptoms one day and you really don't have many issues with it throughout the rest of your life. So it's really totally dependent on the person and the type that they have. Also because I was in probably one of the hardest parts of school and so going every day and seeing sick people and then seeing, you know, one or two people who had it and they were coming in with complaints of symptoms from their multiple sclerosis, it was just the worst thing for me, honestly. I was sitting at Sean and Lane's house when <clears throat> Catherine called um, and said, hey, I need you to come home. And I asked her, hey, you know, what's going on? And she said, I just need you to come home. Um, like, I got my test results back and they're not good. So, I sat there and just kind of broke down. We sat and prayed with Sean at his kitchen table. Um, and it was like the first time in my life that like I really didn't know like what was going on and uh, what the next step was going to look like because Parkinson's runs in my family. Um, uh, my grandfather has it, and so I, I'm at a risk of having it. And so me and Catherine had previously talked before we got married, you know, hey, should this arise in me, Catherine will take care of me. Um, and so then when we get this news and it looks and it's like, hey, who's going to take care of us if we're both, you know, incapable of taking care of each other or ourselves? Um, so that got really real really fast and it got really um, scary really fast when you realize that things are so out of your control. I think for me, um, I've always been kind of a closed off person and I didn't like to share my business with people. Um, I seem very extroverted but I'm probably more of an introverted extrovert if that makes sense. 
Um, but when I had the scare with the breast tumor before, um, I remember Sean saying, hey, like this is the entire point of having a community. Like there are people who have been through this and who have walked through this and you don't have to do it by yourself. And so for me, um, it was hard to accept that because like I said, I, I tend to keep certain things to myself, but um, it was also nice to know that there are other people that were there. And um, you know, after we had the MRI, I know Sean and Lane were there right with us. They're some of our best friends and it was really comforting to know that we had other people there um, who were concerned and who loved us and were gonna be there for us throughout the entire process no matter what happened and um, I remember community group I remember sharing that moment and people just being very supportive and for me um, that was really nice um, and something that I needed just because that's not something that I usually do I don't share my personal um, story like that and so it's nice to be able to have people who are very open and didn't necessarily ask a lot of questions um, but the whole point was for me to know that they were there and that I cared, that they cared for me and that I was loved at that moment. And that was really, really nice for me to experience. Still technically don't know what's going on. And the thing is, is truthfully, it could still possibly be MS. Um, we're not sure, but at least I know now that, you know, with this whole process that we've gone through, um, I've gone through the extreme anger of God. I've gone through the anxiety that was just so crippling to me. It affected me every day to the, the point to where I was crying and screaming in the shower because I didn't know what else to do at that point. Um, and seeing how we've been able to get through that and God has held us in His hand so tenderly. Um, I know that regardless of what happens in the future, whether I get a diagnosis or I don't get a diagnosis to explain things that have been going on with me, um, I know that God is still with me and He's still going to care for me and love me um, regardless of what happens from here on out. I had no clue what we were going to get into, um, I guess when we got married, <laughs> but <laughs> when, when uh when all this stuff came up and then through that we've been able to share the story with people and it's a way to teach people about hey faith pays off faith is real like having faith I don't know you just get answers when you need them and um in our situation wasn't necessarily an instant like Catherine wasn't going to croak tomorrow but it it's still a hey we're taking a step and, and trusting that God's going to be there and meet us in the fire that um, should this not be done, then we'll take the same leap of faith again and and wait to see his answers come. That was, a, that was an intense thought. I love that. That was, that was the most deeply funky way to ever say that. Like, yeah, she croaks tomorrow. Church, I, I don't want you to mishear that everything is great because we don't know. Right now, it's really good, thankfully. God is good. And thank you guys for sharing that, by the way. Um, if you have the joy of knowing Catherine, you know that that probably took every bit of her <laughs> to say yes. But the, the story is worth sharing because when, when you're in the middle of that fire, what are you going to do? Where, where are you going to go? What are you going to see? 
Gehenna. The incredible part of this piece of scripture is verse 17 when he says, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you. If God leads us, we know he will deliver us, and if it's by death in the fire or not, we'll still worship. So church, the question is this. It's not what will you do when life happens and when things are hard. The question that you need to have an answer to is that when life happens, at whose feet will you be found? Will you choose circumstance? Will you choose the golden tower of fear, the trepidation of, of control or lack of? Or will you be found at the feet of the great deliverer? Who may have to bring you through the fire rather than keep you from it, but stand with you the entire time? That, that's the question this morning. Matthew 11, Jesus says this. He says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden light. Church, I want to encourage you to do that right now, today. Give God what you kept in fear. Um, watch what he does with it.
Thanks so much for listening. We hope you were encouraged by the message and you feel closer to Christ than you ever have before. If you'd like to learn more about our ministry, visit us in person, or help support our mission as we seek to love Jesus, serve others, and live unified, check us out online at trailside.church, or you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks so much for listening, and we can't wait to see you again soon.